Please continue to stand now as I read for you and and prepare to preach for you out of Acts chapter 8. Excuse me. (laughs) Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, the end of the chapter. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, bread-ridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, washed her they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put all of them outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa And many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one, Simon, a tanner. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, may it be that you would visit us. Some of us here are like Ananias, and we are not even pleading out to you for help. We're just there in need of you. Come, Father, raise us up. Some of us have people praying for us that you would heal us, change us, lift us up, help us. Father, come and raise us up. May it be that we would see our need for you, that we would plead to you as they have pled to you. And may it be that you would heal every infirmity, that you would cleanse us of every infirmity, and that you would heal our body and soul for your service and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This particular sermon was meant to be preached last Sunday, and in last Sunday, um, the timing of it, I thought, was fairly good because throughout the nation, many pastors, to encourage and to make aware to the church, called for people to preach on that Sunday on behalf of churches in Canada, the proclamation of the truth concerning God's desire for gender gender identity, sexual identification, the purposes of what God has created in man and women. Today we are now getting to this particular passage, and I see in this passage an opportunity to go in that direction. But before I go there, I want to just look at the simplicity of what this passage shows us Namely, about the posture that God has toward people, toward his people. There's a very simple message inside of this narrative concerning how God comes to his people and brings them redemption. 
and the purposes that he has for them when he does bring them to healing and redemption. But there's also a parallel story here that tells us the nature of the foundation of God, or excuse me, the foundation of the church. Just as we see in other passages in Acts, there are a lot of parallels to things that occurred in the gospel. There are a lot of parallels to things that occur throughout all of redemptive history. Acts, is in many ways, is the recipient of many promises and proclamations for God's people. But it also it shows a pattern of how God does things, how he does redeem his people. And so we'll be going back and looking a little bit at Mark and Luke, excuse me, yeah, Mark and Luke, and different narratives of Jesus with the gospel that parallels this particular passage. But then I do want to highlight the one particular thing that I think that Luke is highlighting and also Mark highlighted in the account with Jesus of the particular calling that the widows, that women have in these particular narratives and how necessary it is for us not only to understand the identity of these women in their particular roles, but how their identity represents us as a church, represents us as the daughter of Zion. And then as we carry those passages that I was telling you about that we read earlier about the wedding that is a delight to God and is a longing for us, we must have a right identity of our posture before the Lord for us to be in delight of the coming feast, the coming marriage that we have with the bridegroom. First of all, we see here in this particular passage that God comes to the unexpected and to the pleading. We see here that Jesus is the one who heals Ananias. He is the, there's nothing unclear about it. Peter makes the proclamation that it is Jesus Christ who heals you when he healed Ananias. And this is for a purpose. We see that there's no kind of pre-dialogue. That's not to say that there wasn't people going to Peter or there wasn't some kind of pleading to God for help for Ananias. But there is no action recorded here that there was the kind of pleading for healing like you see with Tabitha. Peter comes in as he is traveling about and immediately he finds this man bedridden for eight years and who is paralyzed and he heals him. And he says, Jesus Christ heals you. But I want you to look at the particular pattern that is occurring that as Peter is making it clear that it is Jesus Christ working through him, there are particular things that are always repeated through the healing of Christ. He tells him to rise, to make your bed. And immediately he rose. Of course, we see that this is a proclamation of being raised from being down, being lowly, being weak, and being brought up. We can see all the imagery that we see here of the resurrection, but there is this, always this connection of being risen and then being enacted. He tells him to make his bed, to move forward, to hear the proclamation of your resurrection, to hear the proclamation of your salvation, but to move forward. So we see that one, God not only comes to the unexpected and pleading, but that he exalts the weak and the lowly humble, and he lifts them up. He brings those who are weak, those who are down, those who are low, and he raises them up. And we see that God calls his redeemed to action, to serve. It's not just to be lifted up for that particular moment. It's not just a rescue for that particular instance. It is also for a particular purpose. And so God comes to the unexpected and the pleading. He comes and exalts the weak, lowly, and the humble. And he redeems his people to action. And then lastly, he makes a spectacle. In both of these accounts that we see with Ananias and also with Tabitha, 
the end of that particular narrative or that particular moment is that people turned to the Lord because of this display. People came to believe in Jesus Christ because of what occurred. And so when we think about God's redemptive work, we can see here the character of his posture throughout all of the scriptures. We see in a lot of places throughout the Old Testament where it is proclaimed that the Lord comes to those who are lowly and humble, that he is going to lift up and he is going to exalt the lowly. It is a very clear characteristic of what kind of God that we have. We are actually also admonished not to lift ourselves up, not to exalt ourselves, but to let ourselves to be exalted up by him. Is a character of wisdom and discernment for us, even in our own personalities and our own proclamations, to be cautious that it is not good for us to be those who are known to be those who like to exalt ourselves, to put ourselves into great positions, that it is better to be in a place of lowly position, that it is better to be in the seat that is not envied amongst others and to be brought to a place of exaltation. What is it that we have as a reward if we are the ones who brings about our own exaltation? I know from some teaching that Maurice has been doing lately has just been thinking about that a lot about for those who seek after and bring their own self-exaltation or proclaim their own works in righteousness, they already have their reward, which is not very much at all. But for those who see themselves in a lowly, humble, and weak state, the Lord has proclaimed throughout all of his scriptures that he will lift up the weak, the lowly, and the humble. We see this very clearly from the one who has been paralyzed, but we see this very clearly with Tamatha who is dead. But we don't just see it based upon their physical stature. We see it with Tabitha's spiritual stature. That she is one who is given to service. She is one who is known for being one in servitude to the widows. Now some commentators indicate and believe that maybe Tabitha herself was a widow. And that there was an order of widows. It is very clear and highlighted here in this narrative that we are told that the widows had surrounded her and were proclaiming as they weeped and welled at her departure of her good works toward charity, that she took on a lowly role to help those who were lowly and weak. And here in this particular account, we see where Jesus, through Peter, is going to exalt her, to lift her up for a purpose so that people believe. And so it's important for us as we think about what God does for his people And I'm sure that as you think about what God has done for you, some of you encountered Jesus Christ without there even being any kind of inclination that you were going to go in that direction. I know Abigail's fiance would not mind me saying this about Kevin. Kevin was going through a season in his life where he wasn't searching the Lord. He was walking away from the Lord. He was on the computer looking at different things and he came across a sermon. He decided to listen to it, and it completely rocked his world. He wasn't pleading out for God to transform him or to change him or to heal him of his blindness, but the Lord transformed him. Some of you may have a testimony where you had been pleading out to God for help and that you were in a lowly place and you were needing help. I know the testimony of Kevin's mother was that she was pleading out for help. She was in an empty place and she remembered as a child when the truth was proclaimed to her that God was a merciful God. And then as she was praying that prayer, a big family Bible was sitting right in front of her on the coffee table that she had never cracked open. And as she asked the Lord for help, she had the help laid out in both the Old and New Testaments, pleading out for the Lord to come and to help her to save her, to give her direction in life. So we all have different testimonies of how the Lord has come to us and lifted us up from either our blindness, 
our foolishness, the results of our sin and weakness, maybe the brokenness of other people's sin against us. But where we are found is often always and never the other. We are in a humble place when the Lord finds us. But he calls us to action. He calls us to move on, to repent and to believe and to follow and to obey, to follow me. When Jesus came to his disciples, he said, follow me. He presents himself to them as the great one, the Messiah and the Christ. But to follow him, to obey him, he desires to make a spectacle of us. How many of you want to be a spectacle? Not many of you want to have too much attention drawn to yourself. Even the most proud of us get a little sheepish whenever all the attention is drawn to us. Mainly if it's drawn to us for bad reasons or, or reasons outside of our control. But do you desire to be a spectacle for the Lord? Do you desire that the Lord would use his salvation of you, his redemption of you, his his lifting you up from your humble estate and sitting you at a place that is considered to be a child of God, to be those who are the recipients of the inheritance of Christ? Do you desire to be a spectacle? so that people may turn to the Lord. Now, that's a difficult thing. We are called to humility and to to live a life of humility, and we shouldn't be putting the spotlight on ourselves. But we should desire that even individually or through our families or as a congregation or as a church, as a whole, universal, that we would be a spectacle of God's might and mercy to everyone. Maurice was sharing with me the contrast between the hospitals in Australia versus the hospitals here on how they were treating his interaction with him and his brother and trying to speak to his brother and talk to him in these last moments and how they were cold and and hardened by those pleas and how people here, even the secularists and the atheist administrators of hospitals in America, they would not permit, allow that to be The case, you would be fired if you acted that way in America. Well, the reason why that's the case, and if you follow the histories of hospitals in medical care in our country, it is because it's been built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mercy and the calling of servitude that came from the very principles and proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, it might not be as overtly like that today, but it resonates and it creates a spectacle that for us, it is commonplace. We would expect people's positions to be fired. They would be fired from their roles if they did not act with mercy and consideration. But to the world, it is a spectacle. What has happened to our country in the goodness of those things is a spectacle of the goodness of the Lord. Now, those are eroding fast and quick due to our ingratitude and our unwillingness to continue in those particular principles. But it's such a powerful spectacle of what those had done before us through what they believed and the steadfastness of what they held to and acted on generations before us are we going to be a spectacle of god's glory in the church today here we have what weakness and Ananias had in tabitha god had turned it around so that there would be a spectacle so people would turn to the lord so that people would know the lord but we have a greater detailed narrative with tabitha to show us a spectacle of not just in the resurrection of her life, but the activity of her life in the role that she had in serving the widows, serving those who needed care by serving the weakness. She was a spectacle in life and in death and in resurrection 
just like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says that for when I am weak, I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Speaking of God's power and strength through our weakness, our life and testimony of weakness to exaltation is so that the Lord's strength and goodness might be shown. But if you have your Bibles with you, I want to look at two particular narratives. We're going to go through these very quickly based upon the time that we have, but I don't think we can go further without looking at these narratives because I believe that they are truly parallel narratives in some sense to teach us what the nature of how God is doing what he's doing in the early church is actually the very work of Jesus Christ. We see it through the proclamation of Peter, but we also see it through a parallel work that Jesus did in the Gospels. Remember, this is Peter. We've changed gears from Paul for a moment to go and focus on the Apostle Peter. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 38 through 39, we see a very quick narrative that occurs early on in the ministry that Peter saw with Jesus. It says that when Jesus rose and left the synagogue, he entered into Simon's house, which is Peter's house, before he was given the name to, to maintain as Peter. And it says, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill and high with fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and she began to serve them. Now, this was maybe one of the first miracles that Peter saw, his own mother-in-law being healed, being lifted up. But then this very quaint and simple proclamation that she began to serve them. As soon as the Lord lifted her up out of her weakness, he put her to work serving the other disciples. But the main parallel passage is in Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. And it's the story of Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. And in the middle of that, there is this little side moment of Jesus healing a woman with an issue of blood. But first of all, reading in verse 22, it says, Then then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So here we have Jairus, a an official of the synagogue coming to Jesus. And it's important for us to, to highlight, after, you know, giving you a bit of an early clue, to highlight, he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. So Jesus goes. But in the meantime, as he is going there, he encounters another woman who is also seeking the attention and the healing of Jesus. This particular woman has had an issue of blood, a discharge of blood, for 12 years. Now, we don't know exactly what this particular issue is. We can imagine all kinds of particular things. But she had an issue of blood, and she was of the mindset that all she needed to do, she didn't need Jesus to to leave and to come. She just needed to touch his garment. She believed that Jesus was powerful enough to help her in her infirmity and her weakness if she could just get close enough to touch. And she did. And he says, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see a crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched me? And when he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then it says in the very next verse, it says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, the Jairus's house, someone who said, your daughter is dead. So think about this particular story. You have Jairus coming to Jesus saying, please come or urgently come and heal my daughter. And so Jesus says, I'll go. And as he's going, and as he tends to like to do for some reason, we see this with Lazarus also, there's a bit of a delay. He's, he's in a, it's a short delay, but this woman comes, this daughter, this female with this issue of blood for 12 years comes and touches him and he stops to see who it is and to proclaim to her, daughter, you, your faith, has made you well. And then he's nearly interrupted in that very moment of proclamation. And I don't want to add emphasis that are not there, but it just seems so from the context that as he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, this other man comes and you can surely tell in human fashion that he would say, your daughter is dead to Jairus. It even indicates here from how it is proclaimed in Mark that while he was still speaking, there was an interruption of such a sort. Your daughter is dead, saying, why trouble this teacher any further now? That it's too late. It took too long to get there. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, the reason why this is important is that we realize that Peter is with Jesus through all of this. It says that he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw the commotion and the people weeping and wailing loudly. You should be seeing there's a similar parallel now that we have those who are pleading out Peter shows up to Tabitha's home. There's wailing occurring. And when he had entered, going back to the story with Jesus, he says, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And what does he do? He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. The same thing Peter does. And we already know that Peter's of the mindset that the work that he is doing in this healing, we see it very clearly with Ananias that it is Jesus who is doing this. Peter sees, and you can see how he is acting here in this particular narrative, he sees his role as Jesus' work being done. He told Ananias that. And then now as he goes into this situation, he's almost matching verbatim the situation. They encounter the weeping. Then they're talking about Tabitha. And then he says, everyone leave, just as Jesus puts them outside, except the child's father and mother. Peter says, everyone leave. And then it says in Jesus' narrative, it says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Going back to Peter, Peter, as he is kneeling there beside Tabitha's body, he looks over to Tabitha and says, Tabitha, arise. Jesus says, little girl, arise. Peter reaches over and lifts her up. Jesus reaches over and lifts up the little girl. Both in the narrative that Mark gives us of Jesus and the narrative that Luke gives us with Peter, there is this focus concerning the name. Mark tells us that the name Talitha means little girl. He talks about the interpretation of what this means. He wants us to be thinking about how this name Talitha or how this word Talitha means little girl. He wants, and then Luke wants us to stop a moment and hear as Tabitha means Dorcas. And Dorcas 
is parallel and means graceful gazelle. Now you might think, well, that's, what's that mean? Well, maybe you go read a book that you don't read very often, the Song of Solomon. <laughs> and you will see that the gazelle is a very vivid image, or image of femininity of the woman, the future bride of Christ. In both of these particular accounts of healing, we can tell very clearly with Mark and with Luke that they're wanting to highlight the feminine element of those who are receiving the grace of God. If you read the Old Testament, you know very clearly that when it speaks of the daughter, especially the daughter of Zion, that that's us, God's people. We are in this position of being the daughter of God. There are both positive and negative accounts of the daughter of Zion. When we see the negative accounts of the daughter in Zion in the Old Testament, it's often in the context of sin and filth, blood and defilement because of our sin. But that God promises that he will cleanse her. He will lift her up out of her defilement. These are not accidental circumstances that are in these particular circumstances of these girls and women. These are the proclamation of the hope that had been promised to us in the Old Testament. And it is very important for us to not just sense but to see the highlight, highlighting of the feminine aspect of that these are daughters of Israel. These are representatives of what all of the church is to be. And there are characteristics that come alongside of these that we must see. Mark and Luke are imploring us to look at what these words mean, to sense the gazelle, to be reminded of the Song of Solomon in the promise of the delight, to look at the posture of God's peace people to be the graceful gazelle, the beautiful woman of God. It says, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they immediately were overcome with amazement. Somewhere I've missed here in my quoting, and she was told, they told her to feed her, to nourish her. Action immediately occurred. This was a young girl who was 12 years of age. Her life was the same span of the time that it was that the woman who had the issue of blood. And here Christ entered in and healed these girls, these females, these little daughter, these women, these graceful gazelles, and exalted them so that people would be amazed at the grace, might, and mercy of God. This was the proclamation of the gospel occurring through the healing of these women. But I want to go further with this because I think it's so important for us, and especially in this age where there is such gender confusion, for us to understand, particularly for you women, but also for us as a whole church, to understand the importance of celebrating and protecting and participating in the proclamation of what God desires and what God delights in concerning the very ontological difference that women have. Because when we nullify that, we nullify our identity as a church. You don't just nullify the identity of womanhood and femininity. You nullify who you are called to be in light of the grace and the power of God. We must highlight and proclaim and point people back to the word of God of what it means to be a woman. Because we are called to be a spectacle as a church. 
That people will be amazed at God. That people would come to be turned to the Lord. That people would come to believe. And of course, Satan in his arsenal would want to nullify that ontological difference that women have and the church has. So to nullify and to mute that amazement of who Jesus Christ is. Let's think about widows. Luke puts it in the narrative here and at surrounding Tabitha with these widows. We've turned to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 through 16. It tells us to honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, we see here in this epistle that he is giving instruction to Timothy to teach the church on how to deal with widows. It, just, it seems like a practical technicality. This is how we're going to take care of things. But I want you to be very sensitive to these words that are interwoven through all of the epistles about the purposes of the instruction that we get in the epistles. It says here that as we honor widows, as we take care of widows who are truly widows, that it's important that the children and the grandchildren respond faithfully to their responsibility to these widows to show godliness to their own household. These particular distinctions that we have been given, that God has appointed either by creation or providence, by creating women, by creating providence of a woman who has lost their husband and their head of their home, has a particular purpose so that God may use this moment of weakness, this moment of role and weakness together, So that if people would obey God, they would respond in godliness. Why? So that people could understand who God is. That they could see what is godly and see what is right. What else does it say here? For this is pleasing in the sight of God. So he's giving this practical instruction on how to take care of widows, not so that just people would have mercy, so that people would get help. He's not just giving this as just little technicalities of instruction of how to be merciful and charitable. One, it is to show godliness, to be a spectacle of godliness, to show it, and to please God. That's something we need to really highlight here because you'll see this again. That these ontological, when I say ontological, it's a purpose of of being. Lydia is a woman. (laughs) She's been made a woman. That's who she is. God has made her a woman and it has a particular calling. Rachel is a woman. Dave is a man. And that very important distinction that we see from all the way in Genesis has a particular purpose. It pleased the Lord to create man and woman with differences and with purposes and callings and responsibilities. This is why Satan hates it so much. It's a very first order of business. This was pleasing to God. He found it to be very good that he created man and woman. And when we confuse, change the definitions and the responsibilities that God had set in motion from the very beginning of time, it is unpleasing to the Lord. And so here in this instruction about widows, and looking at what widows, who who really is a widow, and how we should respond to widows, it becomes a spectacle of what is pleasing to God. Verse 5, it says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. She's trusting the structures of how God has created things. She's not going to change. She's not going to identify as, I'm not a widow anymore. I'm going to be a widower instead. But she's trusting and setting her hope that God will provide the means that he desires to bring rescue for the weak and the lowly so that he would be pleased and make a spectacle 
to the world. And she continues in supplications and prayers nights and night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. The one who is more self-focused, instead of seeing her particular place and her role, her distinction as a female who is without her husband, the head of her home, is going to be more focused on her own desire and delight when she is in sin. And it says her reward is that she is dead even while she lives. Paul tells Timothy to command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Again, they are representatives of the calling of God. This has to do with the name of Jesus Christ. But if anyone who does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's a bad dude. No, that's not what it says. Well, he's a jerk. It's true, but it's not what it says. Well, he's not very merciful. No, it says he has denied the faith. This has to do with our proclamation of our faith, that we would respond faithfully in these structures of who we are and our identity. If you're a child or a grandchild of a widow, then take care of your widow. Otherwise, you've denied the faith. You're being unpleasing to God. You're not setting your hope on God. You're not showing godliness. You're worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, let a widow who is enrolled, if she is not less than 60 years of age, and look at these things. So these are, this is what a true widow is. One who is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Do you remember the description that Luke gave us in the narrative of Tabitha? What the widows highlighted about her testimony, that her testimony was that she was one given to good works and charity. We remember in the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, that she got up and she served the saints. We see these parallels that these women who were called by God, who experienced the transformation and exaltation of God, have been employed in their particular roles as women. And here we see that a true widow can be put on the deacon list to be supported by the church if her character has exhibited these primary focuses of life and shown this kind of fruit. What is this teaching us? Is this teaching us that this is only isolated to widows? No, all of these activities occurred for women when they had husbands even. Or even if they did not have husbands. The widow is without a husband. She's still active in this role. We see that the focus of this order of widows in the story of Tabitha, that this was their job, was to exhibit these particular characteristics in this particular work for the church. We see from the very beginning in Genesis, even into these epistles now, that children should be a focus of women. Whether you have children or not. We see the instruction in Titus 2, that older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that society would have an orderly way? So that the household would have a good structure, that things would be practically and in order? No, it says in Titus chapter 2, so that the word of God may not be reviled. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
in the instruction toward wives, ultimately the instruction toward women, to be those who with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet, a graceful and quiet spirit to exhibit this imagery of the gazelle in their personalities, in their demeanor, in their posture, in their character as women. Why? First Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says, which is in God's sight, very precious. It's pleasing to God that we highlight, celebrate, instruct, admonish, and encourage women to exhibit this character because they are women, single, married, widowed. We see the consistency of the little girl, the mother-in-law, the potentially older woman. We don't know the age of Tabitha, but the assumption is that she's likely a widow. They all have this parallel character that matches what God desired for the daughter of Zion from the Old Testament and will be the character and the proclamation and the spectacle of the church today. We see at the end of Titus 2 in this calling of servitude for bond servants that all of these things for both older men and younger women, all these particular older men and younger men and older women and younger men and even bond servants that this particular structuring of how God does things adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. The reason why it's important that we teach and celebrate and admonish and demand that women are women and men are men is because it adorns the doctrine of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The reason why we stand and demand 49 years from today that Roe v. Wade be overturned and we also continue the fight by going to our city councils and to our state houses and demand that children be considered precious in the womb is because it adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is no greater defamation of what is pleasing to God that I can imagine than to go and to kill a child in the very womb of a woman, in the very place that God designed and purposed for the furthering of his creation of mankind. When we idly ignore that, we are ignoring the things that are pleasing to God. We are ignoring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must stand. We must proclaim these things because they're pleasing to God. They're required by God and they are Doctrine, God's doctrine of truth. In Zechariah chapter 2, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The representation of women by being women and their particular callings and their obedience to the Lord in these things, entrusting the Lord to use their roles as women, is hoping in this promise that we have in Zechariah. In Ephesians, we are told in chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
We are not to be like the idle widow who's more focused on themselves and just seek for ourselves the self-exaltation of our own personal life. We are to be those who trust and wait upon the Lord so that we may be cleansed and presented to our husband, holy and without blemish. So that on one day, like in Revelation 21 tells us, Verse 2 through 4, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. We must defend God's purposes for men and women. We must instruct the church the roles that we have by God's creation and calling, because it is a spectacle to this world of the salvation of his church, the bride of Jesus Christ. It is a spectacle for us to have here before us this day, this table, which is representative of what Christ did for us and the promise that we have in that great wedding feast as we sit at that table as Christ's bride. It is a precious thing for the Lord to view us as the bride. It is a precious thing when in a few months I will get to tell a little bit of a story of what God is doing by giving my daughter away. Kevin will get to have an opportunity to be a representative of Christ in a story that is bigger than us. We'll use that moment for everything it's got, and Abigail will get to be in a position as a woman, as a bride, to represent our hope as a church. It is a great wedding feast that is before us. Let us fight for it. Let us defend the truth. Let us hold to right doctrine. Let us be a spectacle to the Lord. Let us pray.